Hi, welcome to the Shapeshifters Podcast. My name is Genesis Guevara, and I'm here with Jennifer Salcedo, and it is time for another conversation. Mm. Hopefully, one that will take us and you, the listener, one step closer to making sense of the world around us so we can build happy and fulfilled lives. Boom! What's up, you guys? We're back on episode, I believe, 10, right, Genesis? And That's we right. are doing a part two of answering any real estate questions that came up actually after part one. Um, and also, we want to give a shout out to some people um, that had reached out to us in the past few weeks. Me and Genesis are, again, like we said, episode 10, so you're right at the beginning new stage of doing a podcast together. And we really appreciate anyone who's listening to this and our friends that have supported us um, when we first started doing this. It's really cool to see that uh, there's a lot of positive feedback um, getting back on doing this. Because me and Genesis, we, we, we decided to do this like a year after the thought came up in our head. So, so yeah, it, it feels good um, that we're at least bringing value to y'all um, through me and Genesis conversations between us and also with people that we meet along the way that we feel could bring value into your lives. So we hope to continue doing this and we're having fun doing it. So yeah. How are you doing Genesis? Doing good, Jennifer. Yeah. I second everything you just said, of course. Thank you everybody who's supporting us. Um, we hope that you guys like the podcast and that you guys are getting some new information. I know I do. So, um, but yeah, like let's get started and answer these people's real estate questions. Jennifer, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Okay. So um, the in part one, we kind of walked through the process of, okay, you know, like I decided like I want to start buying a house and why. So you know, here are the steps to actually complete buying the house. Now let's kind of dive into the little um, intricacies of, uh, you know, being a real estate agent who's house hacking. So um, first and foremost, STR versus LTR. What, what are the pros and cons? What do you recommend people do? Yeah. So again, I always uh, ask people what their goals are. And what Gen- when Genesis says STR versus LTR, it means short-term rental versus long-term rental. Um, investors now are kind of hopping on to like the Airbnb, VRBO gang um, because the cash flow they're seeing is almost three times as much as you would get from a long-term rental. And of course, there's always pros and cons with each. I say both are good. Um, you do have to cash up a lot more. Um, we had spoken about house hack in the in the part one. And you, that's what's considered a long-term rental because you're keeping that and putting it under your name, living in it, and then investing, turning it into investment property. Um, with um, doing that, it's like the long-term gain and you're not going to get as much cash flow because those leases more than likely are you know, going to be like one-year-long leases or six-month lease or month-to-month leases. And then you want to market yourself competitively to you know, apartments nearby or even houses in the neighborhood. So you technically can't be like, oh, yeah, let me charge like three times as much. These people are going to be like, I'm trying to live here for my job down the street or my family moved here and I'm just trying to make, you know, make it work. Um, As opposed to a short term rental, they're mostly geared towards, you know, experiences, vacations and kind of like, uh, you know, celebrations. So people are going to pay high dollar for those types of uh, rentals. 
therefore, um, people are going to, you know, it's a different type of uh, investment. So short term, I'd say a mix of both is always good. It's healthy because you diversify into uh, two real estate uh, class classes. So first, when you ask yourself, which one do I do? Um, I would say first get into at least one long-term rental, like for your own home. So you understand the nuances of having a home, you know, like who to call whenever you, the AC breaks down, what to do with such and such with like, um, finding tenants, you know, and then how to talk to tenants professionally, how to legally give them, um, a lease agreement, et cetera. And then, so now you have like a little bit of placement and have a foundation of how to essentially you're running a business. So when you start investing in real estate, it's, it's really like you're investing in a business. So, um, again, so now you have your feet wet and then you're like, okay, but I kind of want more money. I want three times as much. I like cash flow. And what cash flow is again, is just any money left over, um, in your pocket, which is essentially profit, right? It's, it's, um, things that, um, it's money that you set aside for yourself in order to one, either fund your lifestyle or two, buy more real estate. And so that's why short-term rentals are a big, um, kind of like a shiny object because it's nice to have money, you know, in the short term. And that's just how we are as humans. We like things fast and we like money, um, coming our way at a faster pace. And I would say short-term rentals are a lot more, um, you have to put the investment up front with it. So, and then we can get into this maybe in part three, but I, I actually run my short-term rentals from afar. And so I don't have a property manager. And weirdly, I would say my long-term rentals are a lot more work than my short-term rentals if you do it right. So, so yeah, those are the two, um, you know, pros and cons for each. Okay, so next question. How do you find good tenants as far as LTR goes? Okay, so finding good tenants for long-term rentals. Essentially, so you would have to start putting your listing either on one, Facebook Marketplace. Um, two, you could do something what's called roomies.com if you're looking for roommates. And then three, there's always Craigslist. People think that's still a little sketchy, but I actually found a roommate my first time Actually, I believe two of them. My first time I started uh, just having a roommate in an apartment, it was through Craigslist. And I, th- I still think it's a good place to look. I don't, you just have to vet them correctly, meet them somewhere prior, you know, to your house or um, apartment, um, and then bring a friend with you so you feel safe and make sure it's always public. And then Zillow doesn't have, I don't believe they have one for roommates, but they do have one for finding tenants. And I think someone told me that you have to pay for the Zillow listing. So yeah, Zillow. And then Zillow is, I believe, partnered with Trulia, which is another listing site. And you can find roommates on Trulia by listing the listing, listing it for free. So those are some software um, platforms used to find tenants. And then as you go through that, um, you can like Google this. You can say what questions to ask tenants or housemates and then make sure I believe one site is called rentprep.com and that one will show you kind of like um, questions to ask that you can ask legally and then 
vet them properly and always do phone calls prior to meeting them. Like, do not waste your time, you know, because nowadays, like, it is just, you know, better just to vet through the phone. Once you feel comfortable, they went through the process, they have enough income to support, you know, they can pay. And usually the uh, standard is like three times the rent. So make sure they have three times the rent. Um, that to me, that's like standard. Like I wouldn't accept anything less than that for as far as like credit checks, you know, that take it for what it is, you know, have a discussion with them. And if they're open with it, then you know that they're being transparent, you know, maybe they just, you know, had a hospital bill they couldn't pay for, et cetera. And then always run a background check. So, and these two things you, you can have them pay for sometimes the software like Zillow, Trulia, roomies.com have it for a way for them to pay it. And then the background and credit check goes back to you. And them, of course, because they paid for it. So again, you're not paying anything out of pocket. It's them paying to essentially live in your house or apartment for um, for free. So free towards you. So um, Yeah. Okay. So uh, the, the key points I got from that was uh, income income check at least three times, uh, credit check, score check, and then a background check. Okay. So just as, just like any, um, apartment complex would do, you want to kind of treat your tenants the exact same way. Um, is it failure to do so? And you might not get the greatest tenants. So that's a, a good way to um, filter them out. Um, Oh, do you also make your tenants, uh, pay security deposits? I do. Mine is pretty small. People would think I'm actually pretty lenient with that. I It's dependent. So if let's just say, for example, the person had a bad credit score, like really bad, like a below 600. And let's have the conversation on the phone. Hey, you know, I found out the your credit score is pretty low. My standard is X, Y, and Z. So, so let's just say 620 is a standard, right, for, for you. And you can always set your own standards if you live in the house, right, and you're the landlord. Um, you just be, ask them, could you help me understand, you know, what happened, you know, and then they would explain to you what happened. You could say, okay, you click and the phone call, you think about it, you're like, okay, I accept the situation for what it is, they made a mistake, they're working on it. And you could say, but I'm going to have them have a higher deposit, so that if they fail to pay maybe two months worth, you have that deposit. And you can even tell them that and say, Hey, like I understand your situation, but for me to feel comfortable as a landlord, I am going to expect two months worth or X, Y, and Z of a security deposit to make me feel good, better, like for, for having you live in my house. Cause you know, your credit score, you know, tells me otherwise that you couldn't, whatever the reason was for, um, pay. Right. So, but if someone has a high credit score, it makes me feel better because they're in a sense responsible tenant. And, you know, I could just be like, oh, it's okay. Like half of the first month's rent. Right. Because I feel like that's a, for tenants, that's a big barrier to entry, especially if they're like first starting out or like in a tough spot, they don't want to put a whole chunk of security deposit down. So just like kind of, kind of get your feel of the person of who. They are based off of their credit score, based of how you talk to them, what kind of job do they have, where are they at in life, are they just starting out, did they just lose their job, you know, or did they just 
get any job? How often are they bouncing jobs? So all those things like take into consideration. And then you can set your security deposit. Texas, if you're um, Texas laws, they don't have a standard on the security deposit. So they just say reasonable fee. That's a pretty vague statement. So yeah, just be a responsible landlord and anything that I said, just also think about as well. Okay. Um, for your long-term rentals, how do you manage your tenant payments, maintenance, lease agreements, etc.? So I use a platform, which is also free, called apartments.com. So they do not have the uh, option to list for roommates, um, to find roommates, which is why I mentioned all those other ones at the beginning. So, But I use their software online um, as a way to keep track of um, my tenants and the tenants also have a free, uh, profile as well. So they can have their own portal. They can pay through there. No fee. If it's like, uh, I believe it's like a, you just put your account information, your deb debit information, and it's free to set up and you, they can either do it automatically or manually, but they'll have the, uh, their information in there so that when rent comes, they just click, you know, or easier, it's just to automatically get it deducted out of their account. Um, and then they can, if there's any uh, problems with the house, they go through that same portal, everything is logged, and then they can upload a picture and like tell me the details, and then you can resolve it. So everything goes through there. You put your lease agreement through there, make sure you, after you get a signed contract from them, get their driver's license or any form of ID, that proves that they are who they are after you've seen them and after you've got a signed contract. And I want to say to note, um, make sure you do get that license or any proof of ID after you get a signed contract because you don't want to get into a situation legally where you could have, in a way, discriminated against them prior to getting a signed contract because that could come back and bite you in the butt, right? So... Keep that in mind. Always be professional um, doing any of this. Um, and Genesis actually had a good point, actually off call prior to this. She said, hey, like, how picky can I be? Isn't there a fair housing loss? And I said, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But because you're living in the house, it is your right to be picky. Like, there are no fair housing laws dealing with how picky you can be with roommates. Obviously, don't go to the extent of actually pushing it all out there like you want, um, you know, as far as like ethnicity, race, and religion, nobody likes to, that just seems a little too, um, that can be a little, you know, obviously gray area, but more on the lines of like, um, fair housing deals with like age as well, you can actually discriminate on age. So if you choose because someone is not in the same age bracket as you, or they're the same sex as you, you can actually discriminate. So um, as long as you are living in the house and you own the house and you're the landlord of the house and you live in it, you can. Okay. Do you have any tips for finding good contract? I'm sorry. Let me pause. I can't believe that apartments.com offers all of these uh, services for free. That's an amazing tool to have. And probably a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've um, been on, I, do, I am on like platforms on forums on Facebook and you know, these landlords would always ask what platforms to use that's free to use. And they always dog on apartments.com, which actually apartments.com bought cozy.co, which was 
first the platform I had used when I first started doing house hacking, I loved Cozy, but they got bought out by Apartments.com. I continue using them because they just transferred all the information over. And I like them. I have had zero issues with using Apartments.com. Literally zero. So I don't know why um, some landlords don't like it. Maybe because it's not comparable to Cozy.co. But I have no no problem with it. So I don't know what's, what's the issue. Yeah, well, that's another hot tip, right? Um, joining um, these groups on Facebook about, you know, real estate or, you know, long-term rentals, short-term rentals. It's mm-hmm. a good way to get your questions answered. And just, you know, if you just read around, um, watch it, you know, look at what people are posting, you can get good tips on how to manage your rentals mm-hmm. or even your home. Okay, awesome. Great tips, Jennifer. Um, to uh, continue on with the tips, <laughs> what, do you have any for uh, finding good contractors, plumbers, etc.? Or is it just a matter of reading reviews, you know, trial and error? Okay, so this one I believe came from one of our listeners. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a really, really good question because it's a major part of owning a home is when crap hits the fan you want to know who to call because you're not an expert i would let's just go on on the side of you're not an expert at either doing hvac work plumbing work um electrical work what else those main those are the three major things because you always need licenses for that um so what you would do is and we're talking if we're talking about long-term rentals i say know your neighbors you know what i mean like make sure you know at least one or two neighbors, and then ask them, get their numbers, befriend them, get their numbers, and this will be good. Once you leave the place, it'll be really good to have neighbors who can kind of like tell you if something's wrong down the road. Um, but not to get sidetracked, the um, major thing in that is, hey, who do you use as your handyman? Hey, who have you used as an HVAC guy? Are they good? You know, Are they bad? Who do I stay away from, right? So um, that is a good way to find contractors and then two, obviously, we have Google. So you can always Google, um, you know, good contractors. What I would do is, personally, I like giving my business to small business owners who are licensed plumbers, electrician, HVAC techs, just because they're small business owners, right? And I feel that they'll give more personable, uh, you know, time to you. I've dealt with a plumber, for example, in my first property. And he actually saved me from him having to come back and paying a service fee to him. And he was like, yeah, here's the thing I use to unclog sinks um, at the plumbing store. And it's just 10 bucks. I was like, okay, great. But obviously he came out, you know, so I had to pay him the service fee. He did exactly what I would have done um myself DIY and he saved me the second time because I had a clogged issue at my house in a pipe and I remember him and I saved his number called him and I was like hey what was that what was that uh product you said oh glug I went to the store bought it It it's like less than 10 bucks did it next day no more no more clog right so um but as far as, you know, really things that you can't do, you know, like HVAC or electrician work, you know, definitely find someone who has really good reviews, small business owner who will give you personable, you know, um, 
service. And not to say that big, big, you know, uh, big businesses won't, but that's just me. I like knowing the actual plumber who came to my house and will come to my house the next time or have like a, like a, a guy that works with him under him as an apprentice or something. And just, just having someone I can just text, you know, instead of like a customer service rep on the weekend that may, may or may not answer. I don't know. It just kind of seems I can skip all that by just knowing the, the actual tech. Okay, so you said that this guy um, basically saved you from having to give him another call. Would you, looking back at it, would you have just YouTubed or Googled the issue from the beginning and then not have to have called him at all? Or do you like the fact that he showed up and then gave you that tip? I actually did try to YouTube it. So that's why I went mm-hmm. ahead and had him come out because I couldn't figure out what was the issue. Um, gotcha. And then as well as, you know, if how, how uh, urgent the matter is as far as like, oh, crap, this is actually like, I can't do this myself. I'm working or um, mm. some, you know, things like that. And that's why you want to have reserves in case crap hits the fan so that you can pay said plumber 150 bucks to come out for 20 minutes of his time to, <laughs> to resolve the issue or, you know, um, see what's going on and that's just something that comes with home ownership. Um, you know, spending that 150 bucks, he even gave me tips. So it was worth it. He paid himself. Like I paid in, I paid for it for the advice he gave me as well. Does that make sense? I you tipped him? him? No, no, no. I paid for him to come out. Right. And it was, mm-hmm. so say it was like 20 minutes, 30 minutes of his time. And I'm thinking, man, that was 150 bucks, you know, cause these guys, they do get paid well, and they get paid for their for their expertise in the matter that they've been in the in the industry for let's let's say 15, 25, 30 years. Um, and as consumers, we're like, man, that's like that's a huge chunk of change. But if you're getting that personal connection and someone who's willing to take the time to actually teach you, then they'll pay them. It pays to know that one person. You know what I mean? Um, because they'll be available to pick up a call if you just have a simple question like, hey, what is this? You know, instead of like having someone to come out every time, you couldn't find it out on YouTube, you know, stuff like that. Okay. Um, and on that note, um, you you said something about reserves. So when someone buys their first home, you know, they have that money saved up for a down. Um, should they also be thinking about saving money in a little reserves stockpile you know on top of their savings yeah I definitely had like I had a lot of money saved down but for the house specifically I made sure that house I I had 10 grand that I would not use even as my emergency fund it was an emergency fund for the house like that's it and the reason why I say 10 grand and it could be less than I would say like is I knew one I had a I had a brand new HVAC so I wouldn't that wouldn't that wouldn't break right two how, how like uh, old is the roof, right? Would I have to change the roof out, right? And at that time, roofs in total cost, I believe, five to seven grand to fix the whole roof. So I was like, okay, I need at least that, right? And then I forget, the, oh, foundation issues. Um, 
you know, like make sure the house that you buy, don't get scared of foundation issues. Just be aware if you buy a house with foundation issues, have a foundation guy come out for free, which they do that, inspect the property, give them how much they think is, um, it's going to be worth to fix it, have that in reserves, right? So it's like, um, no, definitely know your property prior to buying and then estimate how much you think that would be if you were to replace it one or two years down the line. So. Okay. Um, all right. So these are some good, you know, answers to, you know, once you already have the house, getting these tenants, you know, them living there, dealing with, um, maintenance. So, um, let's get technical about more house buying stuff, you know, as far as like loans and investing goes, what kind of loans can someone get when they're trying to buy a house? Okay, so there, there are several. We'll keep it light because um, there's different. There's tons of loan products for you know investors in general. But if we're talking about just like first time home buyers or even second time home buyers, um, I believe we talked about this in part one. But we there's either like FHA, conventional, USDA, VA, and um, those are the four major ones, and. You'd want to talk to your mortgage loan officer about the pros and cons of each. VA obviously is for military who've served. And then USDA is for rural um, areas that, and, and this is set by like the, um, I believe the, the county that you're in, if it's considered acceptable for to use a USDA loan. And then those are both are 0% down. You still have to pay some closing costs. So you're not essentially just going to buy a home for free. You're going to have to save a couple thousand bucks depending on the purchase price. And then FHA is more geared towards people who have like less than 700 credit score. And then you can put three and a half percent down there. And then conventional, I would say is geared towards people who have really great credit score above 700 because you get the best pricing. And you would uh, estimate you would put for best pricing is 5% down. Some will say 3% down for first time home buyers, but I have been uh, originating loans for the past few weeks and I'm seeing that their pricing is better at 5% down on conventional if you have a great credit score, meaning 700 or above. Okay, great. Great summary there of the loans that we have um, offered to us. Um, what we hear the term underwriting a lot when it comes to real estate. What exactly do people mean when they say that? Okay, so this is the person actually behind the scenes looking at like in depth of what you verbally and um, documented into the uh, lender's portal. So the process is you talk to a loan officer and say, hey bud, how much can you offer me? How much can I afford? How much down payment do I need? What's my interest rate, etc.? And you see this all verbally over the phone. Maybe back in the day you went to a bank and told them all these things. They're on the computer typing this crap up. Um, and then they say, oh, okay, well, there's the prequal letter. You know what I mean? Here's the prequalification letter. This is how much you can afford based off of X, Y, and Z. Okay. And then what happens is you get this email and then it basically is a, either the processor or the loan officer, depending on how, how big the bank is, um, will say, hey, based on what you told us, we need proof of X, Y, and Z. 
where you worked, your two years tax returns, two months bank statements, making sure that you still are getting paid. There's no big chunks of like, you know, questionable drug money, you know, coming into your account because, you know, that'd be a crime. And then as that accepts through processing, there's a person working at home nowadays who's called an underwriter. And that underwriter is the person who really looks in depth about how um, legit everything that you just said to the loan officer is because the loan officer is really just licensed to originate the loan. They're not the person that's like staring at the screen one by one every day looking at who their client was. Um, that's what an underwriter does. And then they need to go by the guidelines of either whichever loan product was given to you and make sure that it's acceptable by those guidelines, right? Because it just depends on on the loan product that the loan originator chose for you. And if it doesn't work, then the loan, orig- loan officer, I'm sorry, those two are interchangeable, by the way. So if I say loan originator or loan officer, they're two in the same thing. Um, they'll go back to the loan officer and say, hey, we can't do this loan product for them because X, Y, and Z, I found this out on their tax returns. Or I found out they filed for bankruptcy for X, Y, and Z number of years ago. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a person who really approves the loan to get you to closing, to get you to sign the paperwork and to make sure that you're following all the guidelines because what happens is whenever you get a loan um, approved, it, it then goes and goes and gets sold to like a secondary market. And that secondary market, they want to make sure that you had, they had followed the guidelines. And that's just basically, that. I mean, that's just business, right? So that, yeah, that's what an underwriting person does. Interesting. I didn't know that. See? Mm-hmm. I knew I had to ask. I'm sure other people are wondering the exact same thing. Um, Okay. How long should one hold the house before they sell it? How many years should I wait? Never. (laughs) (laughs) And I only say that people, I mean, investors and people that are, you know, influencers on real estate investing will always say like five to seven years. And that's a good, you can even Google it. It'll always say like five to seven years hold. And that is kind of like the ballpark number because one, you pay for real estate fees to sell the home. You pay for the real estate buyer's agent as a seller, right? And then you pay for title fees. You pay for um, what other fees? I would say those are the three main big fees, which can literally, you know, be as much as you pay for the home you would probably even if your home did not appreciate which you should not bet on right you just just kind of take that out of the equation you could essentially be losing money by paying by by selling too early right so the rule of thumb is five to seven years i say hold forever every time i've heard podcasts and i probably listen to like 500 podcasts at this point in the past you know two or three years Everyone almost always regrets selling their property. Always. I've never heard someone say, yeah, I really, I thought that was a really good choice um, <laughs> to sell my property. No, they, they don't. Either they hold it or they do something called a 1031 exchange, which we can talk about at a later time or you can look it up. It's a really cool IRS rule for 
anyone who holds a home. Okay. How to avoid capital gains taxes when you do finally sell a home, even though, according to Jennifer, you shouldn't. But if you did. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So just to avoid capital gains on a home sale, you either have to live in the home in the past two out of the five years, the five years past from the time that you're selling, and that does not have to be consecutive. So you can live in it the second year, you can live in it in the fifth year, and you can sell without gaining uh, gaining capital gains, right? Um, and basically, a lot of people won't run into this, but as you're investing in real estate and you're house hacking, also think about that. Um, again, I'm still going to say don't ever sell. <laughs> based off of the wisdom imparted on me from many people who have invested in real estate the past 20 years. But that is one of the rules. And then if you do end up selling, right? And let's say, okay, you do have, you do the two out of the five rule. And then um, there's also a cap. So if you're single, not married, on the profit gain after like whatever you put in plus the profit, the profit will be um, taxes capital gain if it's $250,000 or more. So yeah, that's a big chunk, right? So like the, the, um, the exemption really favors, you know, you like they're, they're really not trying to tax you because it is home ownership. And then if you're married, legally married, um, anything on the profit will not be taxed unless it's $500,000 on the profit over. So still a big chunk. Like it, there's, there's just, it's just, it's good. I mean, unless you've been there for many, many years, um, and didn't live in it and it was over the $250,000 with your single or that half a million dollars if you're married, then you would be taxed. But I mean, that kind of gain is kind of insane. Maybe like for people who live in California or Florida. Well, there you have it, folks. (laughs) All right, we're going to wrap it up. That was a really good um, questionnaire for part two. So I really appreciate all the questions that um, came about from that first episode. If, the, if y'all want a part three, let us know. Um, send us a DM on Instagram. We are at Shapeshifters Podcast on Instagram. You can listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We haven't yet done a video yet, but we are in the process of getting that started. Uh, I think that would be uh, beneficial for y'all, for our audience. Um, it seems like there's a kind of a trend towards watching videos, so or reels is what they call it, so... So yeah, um, till next time, really enjoyed um, doing this podcast with you, Jen. I'll see you next time. Till next time, guys.